Thank you, ladies. You made a great choir, a wonderful sound, pleasing to the Lord this morning. I know Robert's looking forward to having a great number in choir Wednesday. So it happens at 7 o'clock. We'd love to have lots of you ladies there. I know a lot of you already are. And folks out there who love to sing, you need to be part of this. We're intent on seeing our choir uh, do a special presentation for Palm Sunday and Easter. So jump in there and be part of that, all right? What we've been singing about is my heart. This is what I seek to do. Ever since I wrote that little song when I was 16, I want my life to count for Jesus. I've been trying to make him the center, spiritually, emotionally, financially, in my family. In every way, let him be the center. Let my perspective be shaped by the person and work of Christ who is God's highest and brightest revelation of himself. Amen? I mean, there is no revelation to which you can go which is brighter and higher, more complete and accurate than that which is Christ Jesus himself. And so we are Jesus people at First Baptist New Orleans. We are focused in him. We believe in him alone is our salvation, that we are rescued by his work upon the cross. We also believe in him alone. We find our purpose for life on this planet. And until we are connected to him, and know him as Savior and Lord, we really don't know what this pilgrimage is about. Our purpose is found in him. And he is indeed God's highest expression. And he upholds all things, the scripture says, by the word of his power. So Jesus is not just an historical figure to us who lived 2,000 years ago. He is the living Son of God who is present with his church. He lived his life on this planet, truly man, died as a man upon the cross, was raised the third day, and now is eternally present with his church in his people. He resides in the hearts of believers. So we are Jesus' people, not just looking back, but in our experience of life and living. And over the next five weeks, today included, I'm going to talk about some qualities of character. People have called them the cardinal virtues. But I want to do so not in terms of philosophers, but in terms of Jesus and how he exemplifies prudence and temperance and courage and justice. These four are the cardinal virtues identified early in the thinking of God's church. The early fathers talked about them. I'm inspired to talk about them these five weeks because a man who grew up in the church said, I wish somebody had talked to me about those. So young people, I want you to pay attention over the next five weeks, okay? I know you pay attention every Sunday. But these are important. These are vital. These are concerns of character and qualities of character. Now, because Jesus is the focus and he is the center, 
and we want to stay centered in him, we're going to the teachings of Jesus in Luke chapter 12 to begin this pilgrimage, studying these virtues and praying, God, incorporate this in 2013 into my life so I can make good decisions, so I can be wise in my deportment, in my behavior, in my walk. And here we have a sad story, really, in Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. You know, Jesus doesn't harp on specific sins a lot. When he does so, when he pulls them out to put them in the light of day, he pulls out the sins that are closest to us. Not the sins that plague other people, but the sins that plague us. And particularly we who see ourselves as devoted. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. He says all kinds of greed because greed is a big word that encompasses a lot of inordinate and improper desires in the human heart. Longings and desires that if left unchecked, if they go galloping in your life, they bring you to character and moral ruin. If you were to say to me, what are the big sins? I would put greed in the top three for the devastation it creates in families and marriages, individuals, human hearts, and yes, communities. Be on your guard, my brother, my sister. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why? A man's life, it's a trap, that's why, it's a detour. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Could anything be clearer? Is Jesus stuttering? He is saying absolutely the truth about your life. If you don't get this, you will spend your life pointlessly, all your days on the planet, and look back and wonder what the, in the world you were doing. Your life does not consist in the things which you possess. You fall in that trap, and greed will make you do it. And all of a sudden, relationships and the things that really sustain your soul, the things for which you say, I'm working hard, I'm getting these things, these possessions, so that I may take care of my children, the things that actually you say motivate you in your accumulation of things, those things you will lose if greed invades your heart. And it actually becomes the purpose of your life to accumulate more stuff. 
The abundance of your life does not consist in the things that you possess. Jesus says this. This is vintage, Jesus. This is center, Jesus. He is amazing in his freedom from the tyranny of stuff. Stuff has no tyranny in his life. He is not enslaved by anything which he possesses. He's amazing in this regard. He comes at life with such a freedom to live because he is not encumbered by a devotion to the stuff. And he told them this parable. Now, coming out of this exchange with this man who wants him to be an arbiter and a judge, and he says, who made me a judge over you? And so he's refusing to really enter into this particular event. And then he goes on to enunciate, to describe a situation which perfectly illustrates this man's need and addresses his need. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. I want you to pay attention to the word good, dear Baptist brother. All right? Good is in the vocabulary of the Bible. A good crop, a good man. Good deeds and good works are in the Bible, repeatedly throughout the Bible. So when we teach that a man is not saved by his good works or good deeds or the goodness of his heart, we are not saying that therefore goodness is not part of the gospel. Indeed, it is. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, the Bible says. A good crop, just pointing out the word good. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He's in a dilemma. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. All right. What I'm trying to do this morning is lay a foundation of principles by which we make choices about how we live. I do so because I am concerned sometimes about attitudes, approaches, and perspectives among the people of God. And I see them as unproductive and ineffective attitudes and things that take us off into little swirling eddies and keep us out of the current of God's great work in the world, all right? So I'm passionate about it. First principle. You live by this in 2013. God is good. God is good. 
when you get in a dire situation and trouble confronts you and sorrow comes into your life, you stand up and you say, God is good. Why? Because it's the truth. It's the truth. In every circumstance and situation that is represented in this room, God is good. And the folks said, all the time. God is good all the time. Say it with me. God is good all the time. It's all the time. God is good. We affirm the love of God, that God is love. We affirm that his loving kindness is better than life. We affirm that his goodness exceeds all our expectation and desire and deserving. That God is fundamentally and wonderfully good. And this is the anchor for all of our morality. How are you going to do right and wrong if God is not good? It is fundamental to making decisions that God is good. The rich fool is benefiting from the goodness of God every day. He wouldn't confess that because he's living his life without reference to God. He's not rich toward God. God doesn't enter into his thinking. He's not making decisions based on the goodness of God. This man, if you got into a conversation with him, might say, I'm a self-made man. I planted every one of those seeds of grain. I grew it all myself. I I brought myself up by my bootstraps. What I did, I did on my own. I'm proud of my work. I built it myself, he might say. All of which is a blatant lie. If you cornered him, he could not manufacture a single grain of corn. If he could manufacture a grain of corn, he could not make it grow in the soil. He's absolutely dependent on the goodness of God for everything that ever, ever came his way. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, the pastor James said. Even his hands and his fingers which he manipulates with such dexterity are a gift from God. The eyes that he sees his crops with are a gift from God. He cannot explain them. He cannot even understand how they work. If we were left to himself and we told him, manufacture a crop on your own and make it grow, there's not a single way in the world he could do it. He's as stranded in his ignorance and weakness as you are with your cell phone. Do you understand how your cell phone works? I got a little granddaughter who says, this is my cell phone. I got, and she's real limited in what she can do with it, okay? But it's hers. She's got it and she held it the whole time she was here. It frightens me a little that I don't even understand the oldest technology that makes my cell phone work. Not even the oldest stuff. And if you asked me to build or create a cell phone, I couldn't do it at all. And of course, if I tried to use it without the system of towers that circle the world, it wouldn't work anyway. Many of us learned in Katrina that having a cell phone does not a conversation make. 
when all the towers quit working. And it's just a way with that rich fool who thinks he's self-made. And yet, all the resources and genetic engineering of the Creator God have been poured into his life without charge. And yes, he has stewarded those things, but they were not his. And he stewarded them with gifts in his own person and intellect that were not his. They were all delivered to him without his request even or knowledge. And so no matter who we are, anywhere in the world, we are a fool if we say God is not good because everything that is ours is ultimately a gift from him. God is good. It is a fundamental principle of our own morality. Now I want to challenge you with a second principle that the rich fool, I think, understands. Creation itself is good. Now I want you to get this, okay? Because I think God's people forget it. We have a doctrine of total depravity that says men are totally unable to come to God on their own because every man is a sinner and I confess and believe that every man is a sinner, that we are fundamentally broken and that the fissures in the human heart are not surface but they go all the way down to the center part of life, to the very core of our being. I believe that. I also believe that when God made the sun, moon, and stars, he stepped back and he said, it is good. When God made the animals, he said, it is good. Timothy, in, in, in uh, t- 1 Timothy chapter 4, I believe it is, where Paul says, every creature is good. Armadillos and fish and caterpillars and frogs. I hate that the frogs are dying in the Amazon basin, by the way. Have you heard about that? Maybe you hadn't heard. There's a, frogs are dying from a fungus. Every creature on the planet, they're good. Creation itself is good. The world is populated by billions of tiny little birds that you can see if you hide out in a deer stand in the forest in Mississippi or Alabama and while you're sitting there in the cold waiting for some deer to come along that probably doesn't. You can watch the little birds just flit around you by the dozens and maybe hundreds. And when you walk out in your backyard, you will see them and think how many there are in this planet. Now, this is what Jesus teaches you and me about the birds. Not one of those little birds that flits around in your backyard or in the brush of central Texas or in the rainforest of Brazil. Not one of them falls to the ground without your father knowing. Why does he pay attention to sparrows? who are here today and gone tomorrow because they are good. Have you ever watched one? Have you ever marveled at how they are made? Have you ever watched the little creatures on the planet and thought, how in the world do they lay those eggs and build those nests? How does that work? It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's, am- it's, it's astonishing as you watch it and behold it. It's all good. 
I want to tell you something about yourself now. Although God watches every sparrow when it falls. And God designed them and he knows that they are good. You, my sister, my brother, are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus teaches this in the context of God's providence. He says, why do you worry about what you're going to eat? God feeds the sparrows, will he not feed you? Why do you worry about what you're going to wear? The flower in the field is here today and gone tomorrow, and yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all his wealth and glory, was not dressed like one of them. You ever look at a flower? You do and you know, nah, no human on earth can dress like this. This is spectacular. If God so clothes the flower of the field which is here today and gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, ye of little faith. I'm saying, my brother and sister, it's good to be you. It's good to be human. It is good to be a human on this planet. It is good to be you. It's not bad to be you. It's good. And you're going to make bad decisions if you think otherwise. I know people who despair of the human race. They think the human race is all going to go to hell in a handbasket. And we're a sorry species on the planet. And I ask you then, why did the Creator God, who made humans, in order that He might rescue them fully broken, send His own Son to this planet and make Him fully a man? If it is bad, fundamentally evil to be human, how could God become man in Jesus of Nazareth? Is not the truth of the incarnation of God in Christ Jesus, the most powerful statement of all, that it is good to be human on this planet. That humans are of great value in the sight of God. By the way, this is why Jesus wants you, sister, to call God Father. Because some of you did not receive affirmation from your fathers, both sons and daughters. And Jesus knows it. And in order that we might receive the appropriate affirmation from our Father, he said, always call God Father. When you pray, say, Father. Why? So you will know how valuable you are as a son and daughter to your eternal Father. Here is where you receive your self-esteem. Here is where you set a true and proper value for yourself. Here is you where you speak not more highly nor less about yourself than you should, seeing yourself as a child of the Father. So when you pray, say, Father, and mean it, and you will know that God is good and that life is God's good gift. 
and that you, my friend, are accountable. That's the third principle. Accountability. I could go a thousand places in the scripture to help you understand that you are accountable. There are some folks that I wonder if they see that we are accountable. Baptists have for ages talked about the age of accountability and others as well. Talked about an age where a person gets to where they are accountable. They know right from wrong and the decision they make they are responsible for. Accountability. Jesus said every idle word that men speak they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Paul said, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Pastor Peter said, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God has given you a wonderful, some would describe it even a supreme gift. He has given you freedom. Freedom is a core value in our thinking about Christ. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Stand in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, Paul said. Be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. A core value is freedom. I was at the World War II Museum yesterday uh, participating in the ceremonies for the U.S. Freedom Pavilion that was that is being opened today to the public. And I was glad to pray, and as I wrote my prayer and thought about my prayer, I thought about the core value of freedom that Christ has delivered to us. He has set us free from the law of sin and death. We enjoy such freedom. This freedom is even embedded in our Constitution. It was Christian principles which taught them we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. They are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where'd that come from? Not out of a vacuum but in part out of the teachings of Jesus who makes us free. But your freedom is a fearful gift carved out by the Creator God for you. And it means that what you do really matters. It matters how you choose and what you do. And when you get into a point of decision this year, do not minimize the weight of your responsibility. Not only you, but other people will be affected by this decision which you make. That is part of freedom. It's part of the consequence of our choices. It really, really matters what you decide and what you do. It is of great consequence to yourself, to others, and to God. Our accountability means that one day we will be judged. And folks who studied the New Testament say there's the great white throne judgment where the decision is made about the saved and the lost and only the lost, only those who have refused the love of God expressed in Christ are at the great white throne 
But then there is the judgment seat of Christ where believers come before him and they are judged according to their works. And some receive wood, hay, and stubble. That is, oh, what a poor job you did on the planet. And others, gold, silver, and precious stones. I believe in your accountability today, right now, among the people that you love. It's one reason why I want you. I want you to be part of the church. I want you to pull in as close as you can. I want you to build relationships. God wants you in his church, living vitally, daily, in dialogue with other believers. Because that too will help you be accountable. You are accountable in the here and now. And when you stand at the threshold of decision and you think about those folks that love you and pray for you in the church of which you are a part, that faith community, that small group, that Bible study, it tugs on your heart. It makes a difference. We grew up, many of us, in little rural communities where our churches were very small and everybody knew everybody's business. You remember those days? Everybody knew everybody's business. And you were afraid to do anything because you knew Aunt Sally was going to find out and the preacher would know. Maybe you were never part of that. Part of the urbanization of the church over the last 50 years in America Part of the moving from the rural setting to the urban setting is people come into the city and they feel anonymous. Nobody knows who I am. I remember a preacher who said to me, I, I love the anonymity of the big city where I could go places and people didn't know me. He got into trouble and the little place he went. Don't you ever think you are anonymous. Everybody knows New Orleans is the littlest big city in America, right? Don't ever think you're anonymous here. You may be brand new. You are not anonymous to God. And I hope that you will deliberately decide in 2013 that you are not going to be anonymous to his church. You're going to find a place to root yourself and make relationships and pray for other people and have them pray for you and so enjoy the accountability of those loving bonds with a family of faith. It will make a difference in your life, in your business, in your decisions in the boardroom for you to be vitally connected to a family of faith, a body of believers who tug on your heart and are present in your mind when you make decisions. This is part of accountability. Part of accountability is you saying, I know that I will one day be judged eternally. And I know that now it matters not just to me, but to my wife and kids and my family and my friends, what I do. So, I'm going to deliberately and on purpose let other people examine my life. I'm going to let them into the private places in my life. I'm going to let them know who I am. I'm not going to be a person veiled in secrecy. As much as is proper and appropriate, I'm going to open the window of my soul to the people who care about me and let them pray for me and know my struggles. And in that transparency of being, where I am really myself in the key relationships of life, God oversees me. He shepherds me. He attends to my need. 
And when I make decisions, he prompts me with those relationships that are so vitally important. I conclude with this principle that you must not forget, though the rich fool did. The rich fool thought he was accountable only to himself. He just did everything for himself, stored up stuff for himself. He was not rich toward God. And he forgot that he was mortal. Tonight, God said, Your soul will be required of you. Then, who's going to get all this stuff that you saved up for yourself? It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Now, I'm going to talk about death in the Lenten series. Between Mardi Gras and Easter, I want to talk to you about death in view. Because, because, it's on your mind more than you admit, even with teenagers, sometimes with children, certainly with adults, it gets on your mind. You begin to wonder about your legacy, your significance as you age. I want to talk about death from the point of view of the New Testament. So I'm going to do that. But right now, I want to impress upon you. You will die. You. Not your grandmother only or your parents. You have an appointment with death. It's on God's calendar. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's point number two. You're good. And all your days are numbered before one of them came to be. That's point number four. You're mortal. And your mortality is important. I don't want you to get in a hurry. I don't want you to stop planning your life. I don't want you to abandon the disciplines of prudence and justice and wisdom because death is coming but I want you to feel the urgency that brings to every honest human heart we are accountable one day we die what will we do with our remaining days if we make our decisions in the light of the shortening time of our life we'll make them better now I've said a lot of things this morning I hope it's not overwhelming I want to challenge you to link up with God's church. If you feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit today to join with First Baptist New Orleans and become really a part of the fabric of this community, then you're invited to do so. In just a moment, just tell one of our prayer partners, I want to become part of this fellowship of believers. If you've not been baptized as a believer, you have an opportunity to come say, I want to be baptized as a believer and so identify publicly with the Lord Jesus who bought me with his blood and his church whom he formed. Maybe you just need to pray with one of our counselors and say, I'm committing my life to a new 
effort, a new direction in this year. And I want to bond with you in prayer about it. We are ready to do that. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we pray that right now you will do your work in us spiritually, the things that need to be done. God, help these decisions we make, these steps we take to make a huge difference in our lives and the lives of the people we love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.